1: super happy to welcome kate west to the show welcome kate to mindship podcast
0: thanks for having me i'm really excited to talk today
1: yes we have a lot to discuss as we were just chatting a little bit ago before we hit record so we met actually through twitter i guess it was because i've been doing a lot of research and you know reading about doug wilson the whole homeschool i've done a lot of stuff on homeschooling before and that's obviously in this orbit. So that's kind of your background is that you basically come out of that Christian homeschooling movement. Is that right?
0: That's right. I started homeschooling halfway through kindergarten. I used to go to a private Christian school and um, my father got convicted that homeschooling was the way forward. So I um, got pulled out of Christian school, started homeschooling um, all the way through 12th grade.
1: So what would have been some of the influences that convinced your father that Even a Christian school wasn't the way to go because I can understand. Okay, you can go back to Rush Dooney's arguments on government schools, and that makes sense on some level where he he would say you don't want your kids in a public or a government school because they're getting indoctrinated with secular humanism. But why wouldn't your dad leave you in a Christian day school? What's wrong with that?
0: Exactly. So my older siblings had started in public school, then they moved to Christian school, and then by the time they got to me. They decided homeschooling was what they wanted to do. And I'm not sure what the first influence was for my father. He based a lot of things on his convictions. He is what he would call them, and he would listen to a lot of right-wing, conservative pastors, um, a lot of audio type of influence that he mm-hmm. used to base that on.
1: Right. So you made this decision because we were saying before we hit record, we must have some things in common because I was raised Mm -hmm. under the Bill Gothard IBLP Institute in Basic Life. Well, it was Institute in Basic Youth Conflict when I was a kid. Now it's IBLP. But my parents made a decision. I have five older sisters and I was the youngest of all those. But when I was in fifth grade, They made the decision to pull me and my sister out of public school and send us to a Christian, a small Christian school in the Seattle area. Now, they didn't homeschool us because I know I've talked to loads of people who've gone through the ATI curriculum, the Bill Gothard stuff. How familiar are you with Gothard's ATI stuff? Did you come across that in your homeschooling?
0: You know, I wonder if Bill Gothard was one of the first influences on my father. We eventually got more involved with Vision Forum, which was headed by Doug Phillips, and he was very influenced by Bill Gothard. So we yes. were more on that that end.
1: Yeah, and we know Doug Phillips was a Reconstructionist. He was influenced mm-hmm. by Rush Dooney and those guys. So that's a connection right there. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, too, to what extent was Bill Gothard so influential in the early homeschooling movement? Because this would have been... In my case, well, mid-19, late 1970s. I'm just a couple years older than, than you, I think. But that was all going on because Bill Gothard was blowing up in the States. My parents were heavily involved. We used to go to his seminars. I think I started when I was about 13. I could not wait to go to the first seminar. You had to be old enough in Seattle and all that. So were you a part of any of the Bill Gothard stuff?
0: Not by the time. So I was born in the 80s and homeschooled in the 90s. So at that point, I know ATI was still around. And it still is, obviously, but
1: um,
0: I don't know if it was an East Coast thing because I was born on the East Coast. Um, It just didn't influence as much as Doug Wilson and Doug Phillips.
1: Right. So Wilson, this is the name we've been talking about, Doug Wilson. What was the connection with that? Because we know Doug Wilson. Okay, so he's instrumental in this classical Christian education model. What was the influence in terms of you specifically of Doug Wilson on your curriculum?
0: I first heard Doug Wilson probably at um, our church, which was a Presbyterian church, PCA in Maryland. And um, my father went to a conference that Doug Wilson had in Moscow, Idaho. And then I think Doug Wilson came out to a conference on the East Coast. So our church was very involved with Doug Wilson, and they started a classical school based on his model. Since they were homeschooled, my parents were homeschooling me and my younger brother. We used the Canon Press catalog to look at curriculum and helped us decide or helped my parents decide what they wanted to teach us. So, you know, we learned Latin. I learned like Latin in first grade, which I don't, that came from the classical Christian school movement.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, so the cl- what is the classical school sort of model so you would teach sort of the ancient medieval trivium. was that kind of the idea behind what Wilson put together?
0: Um, I, you know, my parents eventually moved away from that as they got more into homeschooling. But from what I understand, a lot of it is the way like classical as in classical Latin and Greek mm-hmm. and the way schools were then um, a lot of logic based types of teaching.
1: So it's supposed to be a throwback to an older, better system. Is that the way I understand Wilson? But as I understand it, Wilson was basically taking Dorothy Sayers' idea. Are you familiar with her book? Because then he wrote a book talking about recovering lost education or something to that effect. And that was basically an extension of Sayers' earlier argument.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I know Dorothy Sayers. I didn't realize the connection between the two.
1: Yeah, because she wrote The Lost Tools of Learning or something like that in uh, decades ago. And then Doug Wilson wrote, I think, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning. And a lot of people credit that with launching the classical Christian education model, which I mean, what what year was this when when you're describing all this stuff happening in your life? When would this have been?
0: Um, it was probably when I was, let's see, 1993, 94 was maybe around when my church started the classical school.
1: So now did you go ahead and complete the whole thing? Did you graduate from that whole system?
0: So my older siblings did. They went through the whole classical Christian school. My sister was the first graduate of that Mm. school. And I went through my entire, after halfway through kindergarten, um, entirely homeschooled. So I had a little bit of a different experience.
1: Right. And what was that experience overall? Would you say academically now looking back on it as an adult? Was it a good education system as a model?
0: Um, Short answer is not exactly. You know, I think we were coming out of a time when homeschooling was not quite legal. And a lot of religious homeschoolers wanted to teach more religious education to their kids. And so when I was starting homeschooling, everything was very religious based. Um, There wasn't any other really options to homeschool. Mm -hmm. And that's what the reason why my parents decided to do that for me.
1: Right. I was going to say, did your parents have any connection with the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, HSLDA?
0: I don't know. We had direct contact with them. That was very much a name that we knew. We knew um, that they were fighting. You know, I was told we were they were fighting for our rights to homeschool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fighting the battle in the <laughs> Right.
1: So you weren't a, your parents weren't a part because you'd have to be like a dues paying member of the HSLDA. As I understand it, I've talked I've talked to Ryan Stoller. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. He from the homeschoolers yeah. anonymous blog and and that kind of thing. He was telling me that basically it's kind of like a legal protection for homeschooling families, isn't it? You pay your monthly dues to the HSLDA and if you do run into trouble with your local state, city, town whatever authorities, they will go to bat for you as you say fighting in your corner to protect the rights of homeschoolers.
0: Right, you know, I if I could, I would ask my parents to see if they actually did pay those dues. I, I'm not right. sure they did.
1: <laughs> right. So what was it about your education, though, that you say now looking back on it as an adult, it wasn't complete? Because, I mean, there's been a mixed bag, isn't it? On on some level, you could say, okay, as a homeschooler, you have more attention spent because it's there is no classroom. There's not 20 or 30 learners. It might be one or two or three with your mom or dad. You've got devoted uh, huge amounts of time to study and you can get really far ahead academically but then it's not necessarily on the social level you're kind of in a bubble what was your experience of, of homeschooling
0: in the beginning i really enjoyed it um when i was you know elementary age my mother was really involved with um what i was learning we did a lot of field trips and nature walks. she taught me how to read and all these basic things that i really enjoyed and i enjoyed learning and I also had struggled in the Christian school that I went to for a few months with making friendships and I just have always been kind of a quiet person and mm-hmm. um, struggled on this the social aspect of being a kid. So I kind of thrived in that environment at first where I could have a lot of quiet time, I could read a lot. I didn't think anything bad about it except that I missed seeing people sometimes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the social <laughs> as aspect.
0: Right. And as okay. I got older, I think it was more difficult for my mom to teach me higher level classes. And so it became more of here's some books we got from a Becca or Christian Liberty Press and read those and then take this test. And then sometimes it was, here's the answer book to the test, grade your test. So by the time I was in high school, I was teaching myself Mm. and grading my own paper. I didn't write papers, my, my own tests. And it was difficult and very unbalanced because I don't know if you're familiar with the Becca curriculum, but yeah, it was a little bit, well, maybe a lot racist, and didn't include complete parts of history and science.
1: Right? Was it like a young Earth creationism and all that kind of thing?
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they're using. Are they using like Ken Ham's stuff for for some of the curriculum? Or people oh, like? Yeah, that? I went
0: to I <laughs> I went to see Ken Ham and learned oh, how yeah. to talk to people about. <laughs> Were you there when the Earth was created?
1: Oh man, so right. You're getting uh, on the one hand an incomplete education, but it's certainly got a a bias to it, doesn't it? I mean, they're gonna push that young Earth creationism and creation science and those kind of things. So yeah, that Mm -hmm. could be problematic from an academic point of view. What did it do after you left high school? Did you try to go on into higher education?
0: So this is where uh, my family's involvement with the Christian Patriarchy movement really hit home for me because. We were part of, I don't know if you've heard of the stay-at-home daughters.
1: Yes, I have. Body okay. Yep. Yep. I know yeah. a, lot, a little bit about it. I've researched it.
0: Okay. So I was a stay-at-home daughter until I was 25 when I got out. And that meant I stayed home. I did not go to college because it was not useful for me. I was going to become a wife and mother. So why would college mm. be important? And not allowed to have a job, not allowed to really go anywhere by myself. So it's very isolating in that aspect.
1: So you've got the stay-at-home daughter. To what extent is that linked to the sort of evangelical purity culture? Because obviously there's got to be a correlation. Would it, would it have been like the courtship model? You're going to be a virgin on your wedding night. If you did find someone to, let's say you were interested in, you'd have to court, he'd have to court you, I guess, with your parents' permission. Is that kind of how the model worked?
0: Exactly. We had a very strict form of that. My father would probably say that Overall, evangelical purity movement was too liberal because (laughs) too
1: loose. (laughs) Yeah, it's too loose
0: because it still had emotions involved. So he was big on this idea of emotional purity. So you're not supposed to have any feelings for someone until you're betrothed to get married. So, uh, yeah, that will do something to uh, your head.
1: (laughs) It will, yeah, because some of the articles I've read about the stay-at-home daughter movement, some of these women by the time they do get out. They don't even have a driver's license. They have mm-hmm. no real marketable skills to get a job. What was you, what was your position? As you, you said, you were 25. Did you get married or did you just finally have enough and get out? How did you get out?
0: It's a very long story, which is why I'm writing a book about it. I was able to teach piano lessons to other homeschool families and save money that way. And over time... I started understanding that something was very wrong in my family and that I was not doing well mentally and eventually got out with that resources. And also I got married right after that um, with somebody who understood where I was coming from and was like an emotional support as I was leaving. So it's a very complicated story. It took a lot of time and processing and a few people being supportive that I was able to get out because otherwise very financially restricted in, in that movement mm. as a woman.
1: So who are the proponents of the stay at home daughter movement? We mentioned Dr. Vadi Bacham. who among the other figures would you have like your, I guess your dad would have used as uh, resources for that movement.
0: Right. The vision forum, which was um, a company that produced curriculum and toys and books for the homeschooling world they were a big proponent of the state home daughter movement. So Votie Bacham was a part of that. Um, He spoke at vision forum events and Doug Phillips was the one who ran vision forum, Um, very problematic person. And our pastor at that time, when I was a teenager in Colorado was Kevin Swanson. And I don't know if you're familiar with him, but Mm -hmm. he was um, the leader of the Christian home educators of Colorado for a time.
1: Right. So these are the figures that that would have, yeah, loomed large in that stay-at-home daughter movement. Looking back on it now, from a sort of religious trauma syndrome perspective, how would you say it affected you as a a young woman growing up in that system?
0: Very stunted, very isolated, total lack of autonomy and, and sense of identity. So everything was, all parts of my life were serving my father and then working to be able to serve a husband. So it had nothing to do with who I am as a person, who what I like to do. For instance, if I learned math, it was so that I could help my husband someday with calculating the bills or whatever. Mm-hmm. So everything was geared towards men. And so, you know, feminists were the ultimate evil and being a woman in that kind of misogynist culture, you know, you start to hate yourself mm-hmm. and it's just really destructive. And I was very depressed and had a lot of anxiety, and getting out of it was difficult. And then some of that PTSD kicked in. You know, you think that you're escaping, but then it it gets worse a little bit for a while.
1: So what happened to Doug Phillips? I and mean, we you know Vision Forms gone. You mentioned he was very problematic. The whole thing kind of ended in a big scandal, as I understand it.
0: Right. He um, there were allegations that came out of him being um, a sexual abuser of a woman who was living, I believe, with his family at the time as a nanny. And that eventually, I think, ended in some kind of settlement. But vision form at that point was over. A lot of people who were proponents of Christian patriarchy and state-home daughters disowned him and acted like it was had nothing to do with the theology or the ideology. It was just that one bad person. Mm. Um, and that was really frustrating for me because... I can see the lines of, you know, you create this hierarchy where a man is the ultimate power, and then they abuse that power, but then the people don't make that connection. The imbalance of power is where that problem starts.
1: So what's the Doug Wilson part in all this? Okay, so he starts this classical Christian education model, but we also know he's a major, major proponent, big figure in the Christian patriarchy movement. What was his Mm -hmm. role in all this story?
0: So Doug Wilson has always been very outspoken about patriarchy. Even before we heard of Doug Phillips, I can remember I've known Doug Wilson's name pretty much. You know, he's been in Moscow, Idaho this whole time. He's had different kinds of controversies over the years from his book about slavery to abusers in his church not being dealt with correctly. And, you know, his books, especially certain ones from the 90s that talked about women submitting to men and men being this version of God, basically, um, in a woman's life. So that's Um, very
1: problematic for sure, especially if you're raised in this real patriarchal environment.
0: mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a couple quotes here from, I pulled up from Doug Wilson, if you want me to read those, because I thought they kind of show exactly how outspoken he is. I think a lot of patriarchy people aren't quite as obvious as he is. And that's why it's surprising Mm -hmm. he's still around and still so successful. So this one is from a book called Her Hand in Marriage, which is about courtship, which is a big influence in my family about the courtship model. And he said, women inescapably need godly masculine protection against ungodly masculine harassment. Women who refuse protection from their fathers and husbands must seek it from the police but women who genuinely insist on no masculine protection are really women who tacitly agree on the propriety of rape.
1: Yes, and I've heard that, that quote before. It's very disturbing.
0: It really is because it just shows that women can't have their own identity within that movement, within that church. They have to be controlled. I think the word protection is used a lot in Christian patriarchy, but really it's about control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that creates an environment where abuse happens more often, and it doesn't protect them from that. It, it makes them more, more vulnerable to it.
1: Right. Because you can make the case if a woman is sexually abused, let's say, well, she took herself out from underneath the protection of her father or her husband. Therefore, mm-hmm. hold your hands up and say, well, it's it's kind right. of her fault in a way, isn't it? Exactly. It reminds me so much of the bill. I'm sure you've seen the umbrella of protection model. Yeah. What I was raised with. I remember this very clearly when I was about nine or 10, my older sister, Valerie, she got pregnant when she was about 17, you know, when she wasn't married and it caused a huge scandal our church, you know, and everything else. But my mom pulled me aside and she said, now the reason your sister Valerie got pregnant is because she has removed herself from Mm -hmm. the authority of, your father's umbrella of protection therefore she is you know basically opened herself up to this satanic attack and look what's happened everything that's happened is, is her fault and it's her problem she has to deal right. with it so that that strikes me as a very similar terrible. kind of a theology isn't it
0: yeah that is that's terrible that you yeah, know it is. usually the women's fault in the end
1: yeah yeah and then my parents could justify basically forcing her to give her child up for adoption and forcing mm-hmm. her out of the home and you know, she kind of like, well, you made your bed now, lie in it. I mean, it's the way it is. And the question was for, from Valerie's perspective, how do I get back under, you know, the umbrella? Too late. Apparently, it was too late. We can't take you back in because you've gone too yeah. far. You're you're out in the cold now, you know. So she was just forced to deal with it by herself.
0: And that's part of that coer- you know, the coercive control of this kind of group is, you know, you're told. Patriarchy's protection and you have you're choosing to be here serving underneath your father's headship right mm-hmm. or you're being submissive you're choosing to be submissive but in reality if you leave or if you say i don't want to do that anymore then you're kicked out of the family out of the church out of like you don't have any money some like people don't shunned. have birth certificates like it's there's no other option for you unless you're able to find someone to help you get out
1: right so the fact that you yourself you got married You weren't shunned then in that system?
0: So I was, I mean, I, the story is very difficult because Mm. I was trying to get out. I was trying to talk my father into letting me get married to now my husband. And I became the rebellious daughter who had too much emotion and who needed to repent of all of my emotions. And so a lot of that emotional verbal abuse kicked in more so than it had before, because I was speaking up for myself and I was trying to get out because I had had a previous courtship that my father ended. And at that point I realized he's going to do whatever he wants to do. He's not going to let me decide what the Mm -hmm. future of my life is going to be. So I was trying to talk with him and trying to work it out that we could get married and that he would have his blessing. He said he wouldn't give his blessing. And I said, I'm going to leave and get married anyways. And at that point, I think if it was up to my, my dad, I think he would have just never talked to me again, but my, my husband's family, I think talked him into going to the wedding and being a part of that, at least on the outside, you know, and I tried to keep a relationship with him for a few years after that and trying to make it work, but he wanted to pretend like nothing had ever happened. Like he was the greatest dad of all time. He was saying he was proud of me for going to college, which was a complete lie because he told me I shouldn't go to college. Right, And then eventually after writing him a letter and addressing some things, he decided he didn't want to talk to me. So I've, I've not been in co- contact with him for quite a while now.
1: Right, so he cut off a relationship with you. You didn't decide, Hey, I'm going to cut it off with you, dad.
0: Right. Yeah. He decided he didn't want to talk to me anymore.
1: And what was his final reason for saying, I'm cutting you off, Kate, I'm done now. You're you're too far out from underneath my umbrella, and but you're married. I mean, you're under your husband's right. umbrella. You know, what's the problem?
0: Right. I started talking online about what sure. happened to me, and I was interviewed by the Christian Post, and that kind of sparked his rage. So <laughs> so I, you're not supposed I, to talk to outsiders about what's right, happened right. in the family.
1: Right. So as I understand the model, then, as a, as a girl grows up, she's under the, to use Gothard's metaphor, the umbrella of protection of her father. Then there's the courtship and everything else at which point she gets married and then passes underneath the umbrella, as it were, of her new husband. So at no point is she out from under the protection or the authority of her father, than her husband. Is that how it's supposed to work?
0: Exactly. And so, you know, the language is always positive. They use words like protecting and headship, but really it's, you feel like your property being transferred from one man to another. You don't really have much of a say in, in that at all. Mm -hmm. And I think Doug Wilson is very much on that side of belief.
1: When we come back from the break, we're going to pick up the second half of this chat with Kate West. We're going to pick up where we kind of left off there talking about her experiences, not just in the stay-at-home daughter movement, but really Doug Wilson, his influences. Is he a Christian Reconstructionist? His influences on homeschooling, this idea of taking dominion. We're also going to be touching base on whether or not this whole movement, the Christian patriarchy, the biblical patriarchy and all that, does it have elements of cult psychology? Does it meet any of the markers of cults as identified by people like Dr. Steve Hassan, Dr. Robert J. Lifton, and others. We're also gonna then end by talking about how Kate has recovered or I should say is in the process of recovering. What is she doing nowadays? And she's going to offer up some really helpful resources. If like her, you came out of that movement, the Christian homeschooling movement, any sort of high control religious group that you experienced things like religious trauma syndrome or any other kinds of abuse, you can tell your story. And she's part of an organization and she's going to give you the links to that. So some really good stuff coming up in the second half. Half. I just wanted to mention though, before we get back into the chat with Kate, that I've been doing a ton of work, as I mentioned already, on Doug Wilson. This is the second episode. Coming up next is a part three, looking at the many scandals that have been attached to Doug Wilson over the decades. Yes, you heard that right. It's not just a couple here and there, it's the decades going back for literally years and years and years. I'm stunned now that I've done this episode, it's about three hours long. The one I did before part one was two hours long. This one, there's so much that it's about three hours. And believe it or not, there was a couple of scandals that just erupted just in the last couple of weeks. Doug Wilson does this thing, something called No Quarter November or something like that. And he got involved in yet another scandal just in the month of November. I just didn't have time to get into it in that episode. There's some other stuff that came out, but it's unbelievable. Like I say, over three hours long. And we're going to be picking up on touch and base on some of these things that Kate and I talk about here. And then I've got an episode coming out with David Johnson and we're going to be talking about Doug Wilson's influence on this whole neo-Confederate movement, the downplaying of Southern slavery. It wasn't so bad. He had a book that came out called Southern Slavery as it was, and I think Kate mentioned a little bit on that. She alluded to that. So there's a lot more stuff coming out on Doug Wilson, and I also was able to interview Doug Wilson's former professor at the University of Idaho, Dr. Nick Geyer, and he was he was Doug Wilson's teacher back in the 1970s, and he's done a lot of Writing and exposes on Wilson over the decades. He lives there in Moscow, Idaho, and he's been one of the sort of main sort of critics of Doug Wilson and his efforts to Christianize the town, as well as a lot of other things that Wilson and his empire have done over the years. So that is a really fascinating episode as well with Dr. Nick Geyer. And then I've got one more coming out, maybe two. We're going to talk about these people, the dude bros, the beard bros, I don't know what you want to call them, but these are men that have been in the Doug Wilson orbit. They're now the second and third generation people who are going out and pushing, taking his sort of biblical patriarchy, his Christian patriarchy movement to another level, to a whole new audience and they're finding a massive audience, and it's really, really disturbing where these guys are going, and they're taking this toxic theology. So there is a lot more stuff coming out. We're going to take a little bit of a break for Christmas, but I think I might just release the one about the many scandals of Doug Wilson before Christmas, and then we'll come back with that episode with David Johnson after the break. I just wanted to mention, too, off the back of that first episode that I did, I got a number of Patreon supporters who were very interested in helping support my work. This has been a massive undertaking. I really appreciate, and I'll name the following people. Thank you so much for being the latest supporters of Mindship Podcast on Patreon. I want to say thank you, first of all, to Pat Bradley. Pat has donated $5 a month, so a big thank you. We also have Colleen Follett-King, as well as Amy Harrell, or Harold. I'm not sure how you pronounce her. Her last name, but again, coming in at a $5 a month level. So thank you to all those people who support the show on either a $1 or $5, or you can also support my work on a $10 a month level, and I'll send you a nice MindShift Podcast t-shirt. Or if you come in at a $5 a month level, I'll send you... A nice little gift all the way from North Wales which is even more especially poignant now as I've just completed my British citizenship. I went up to Liverpool the other day and did my swearing-in ceremony so now I am officially a British citizen after living here for nearly coming up on 17 years now so I decided want to make it official and get that done so that was a really big kind of milestone in my life making that decision really never to return to America and become an expat so I am officially a British citizen so let's get on back now into the second half of this chat with Kate West as we pick up Doug Wilson part 2 looking at this issue of power control and spiritual abuse in the homeschooling community in the stay-at-home daughters movement that Kate was a part of growing up and of course has now escaped and is making her own way and also is becoming an advocate for people just like herself Right. So we know okay, what we were saying earlier. So Doug Phillips was a Christian reconstructionist. Doug Wilson is sort of a second generation, slightly softened version. He's not as hardcore as guys like Rush Dooney were. But one of the things I understand about Rush Dooney's vision for Christian homeschooling was that that was a vehicle by which Christians would ultimately take dominion. And so this whole system plays into it's a generational vision. It's going to take you know, maybe hundreds of years, even did you come across any sort of that Dominion theology type thinking in your curriculum?
0: Oh, yeah. Um, one year, all my history was just listening to Rush Junie's audio tapes. Oh, really? So, <laughs> it was direct. How exciting. In the blood, bloodstream <laughs> indoctrination. Yeah, straight but, in. <laughs> and, you know, Doug Wilson, I I would say that he is very much a reconstructionist. Even if you go on his church website, it says that they want to make moscow idaho into a christian town
1: yeah so he,
0: he very much wants to make christianity the religion of the land
1: mm-hmm. yeah he's certainly trying to take over moscow and then maybe from there the, the wider world i mean as i look at doug wilson he's got like this sprawling empire he's got all sorts of media arms and you know colleges seminary stuff that he's founded he's now replicating his teaching people are going out and planting churches in the CREC model or in that, mm-hmm. in that denomination. So he's got second and third generation now, of you know, men and women who are going out and living out his sort of theological worldview, but that didn't happen to you though. You got out.
0: Eventually. Yeah. I mean, I was very much into it for so long and I didn't have access to outside information. So it was everything I knew. And it took just a few people saying, are you okay? Or like, for instance, my brother left, really young, he joined the army. And when he got married, his wife was confused. She had not grown up Christian and she was like, what is happening? I don't understand. And so in my brain, I was in my twenties thinking, that's interesting. She thinks this is weird. And this is my entire life. Then you start thinking and, you know, it takes years to process all of that. Eventually I had access to the internet um, in my twenties and I started reading online stories of people who had left. And Homeschoolers Anonymous was a big part of that mm-hmm. journey for me. So without that, I don't know, I probably would still be stuck there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a system. I mean, as you're talking, I can't help but draw parallels to the world of cult psychology. Have mm-hmm. you done any research as, as far as you know your, your background, your upbringing, and the world of cults? Because a lot of things you're describing tick a lot of the markers.
0: I know. Yeah. And I had grown up thinking, you know, all the like the Mormons or these
1: yeah. those are cults over cults. there. Those are cults, right? <laughs> we're not a cult. Yeah. Oh no.
0: <laughs> the past few years, as I've been researching and studying more about what happened in my own life, I'm realizing more and more those points of being in a cult. And as I've been writing, I was looking at Stephen Hassan's cult model, the bite yeah, model. I was
1: just going to say, yeah. Just,
0: mm-hmm, pinpointing every single thing on that model is something I experienced. right? And it's just kind of eye-opening and a little shocking to realize how serious it was.
1: Well, and the thing about this, as I've researched Dominion Theology, Rush Dooney, Christian Reconstruction, then I got into the homeschooling thing because that's obviously sort of the next logical step. It it reminds me that you go, wait a minute, second, third, and fourth generation people just like yourselves, if that's the way they're going to take Dominion, over the world, this is not a good system, is it? I mean, it doesn't work. There are some Christian homeschoolers who, who I guess, don't fight against the system; they just stay within mm-hmm. it, like you said. But people like yourself, you've stood up and said, "Hang on a minute, this is this is more like cult psychology." How are they going to take yeah. dominion if if that's the kind of people they're producing who rebel against the system?
0: It's so frustrating because I feel like, especially with Doug Wilson, he just keeps coming back. I don't know how he keeps gaining power, but for instance, I. Was going to a church in Michigan where I live now, for a while, and they had a new associate pastor who started bringing in Doug Wilson's books to Bible studies, and I was like raising my hand, like, yeah, um,
1: "Hang on a minute, i not
0: okay." <laughs> yeah,
1: do you and, know who this guy is?
0: Right, and they didn't take me seriously. They they said, you know, adults can discern for themselves, and I'm trying to say this is like not just a difference of opinion; it's really about. Power and control and harming people, spiritual abuse. Uh, it wasn't taken seriously, and then I found out well, after I left, the associate pastor who was who was involved in that, he eventually left and joined the CREC. So I, I feel like I got the last word on that one. Like yeah. I told you, he was part of it. Like this yeah, is not a okay. part
1: of that. It's such yeah. an influence, isn't it? And I, as I researched Doug Wilson, it just astounds me that people like John Piper, for example, platform mm-hmm. Doug Wilson and he's always on podcasts, he's on YouTube shows, and obviously he's got his own Canon Press YouTube channel. He's got Man Ramp, but he's he's got his own Canon Press publisher, so he's able to churn out volume after volume after volume of books. He's got his blog that he writes, and he gets hundreds of responses and thousands of hits on it. You know, so he's, he's, he's out there, and like you say, he's getting bigger and bigger. I think he, I, I see he's getting mainstreamed in a lot of ways in evangelical churches. I mean, do you see him sort of like working his way into your typical church that you go, okay, that's not going to be a part of a CREC church. Why are you reading Wilson's books?
0: Right. And I think a lot of it is marketing. I mean, I think a lot of cults, you know, the, you know, the very extreme ones you might think of as too obvious, you know, like heaven's gate, for instance, everyone's like that one's too extreme. We understand that that's, that's wrong. But with Doug Wilson, he didn't go to, I don't believe he has a seminary degree. He started his own denomination. Yep. He started Bible his
1: college, own, seminary, Christian yeah. school. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he started his own publishing press. He can do whatever he wants with those tools. So he basically yep. created his own world. And then he's very good at marketing that and he makes it look very shiny and high production. The content he's making now is. Very good production in terms of it looks really professional. Yeah. I just watched the the Even Exile, they call it a documentary. Mm -hmm. Um, It looks like propaganda to me. So I think Christians who want to follow what they call traditional gender roles or the traditional family, they're going to see that and say, oh, this looks really appealing. This looks like a legit person. He has the same values as I do. And then they get sucked in and then they don't realize the more damaging aspects of that until they're too far in.
1: Mm -hmm. It's too late. So would you say, looking at Doug Wilson's empire up there in Moscow, is he running a cult? Basically trying to take over the town and like you said, all these tools that he's got, media outlets all over the place. Is he running a cult? What's he doing up there?
0: I think with... Christian patriarchy, it's all about power and control. And that's what I understand cults to be about as well. Yeah. I think if you went through the list of the bite model and looked at what's really happening there, I haven't been to that church myself, but the stories I've heard from survivors who've come out of that church and who've talked about the abuse they've experienced there, I would say that there's a lot of check marks on that cult list of what Christ Church is doing.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, that's the thing is that there's a continuum. That's another aspect of the Hassan model, isn't it? Is that he talks about a a spectrum of influence. Some cults are more destructive. Obviously, like you say, Heaven's Gate, Jonestown, Aum Shinrikyo, they're not, you know, they're out uh, dropping sarin gas on the subways in Tokyo. They're killing people. But Doug Wilson's group, they're not killing people. They look like they're well-dressed and they live in nice houses and run Mm -hmm. businesses and everything. So on the face of it, It looks good. You know, welcome to Moscow, move to Moscow, I know, And a lot of people are doing it, actually moving to Moscow to be a part of whatever Doug Wilson's got going on up there. But then you hear on the back end, it could be a destructive cult in that you're damaging people's lives. You're shunning people on the back end and all the other abuses that we know about from that church. So yeah, I look at it, there's a lot of destruction going on on a relational level, personal level.
0: Yeah. And if you're, you know, if you're a straight man, you're going to benefit from the system, but everybody else, women, people, LGBT people, children are going to be the ones who suffer in that kind of a system and they don't have a voice in the system. So unless they mimic or mirror what the men are saying, so it's not a safe place for anybody, but, but those men who are in power.
1: It's true. And we also know the other aspect I've uncovered is the nepotistic aspect of it. I mean, that's another thing nepotism wilson's a master of
0: putting, yes
1: you know brothers and sons and sons-in-laws and he's got all of these people running different aspects of his empire and he can mm-hmm. maintain control through nepotism and cronyism and all that so that's another sort of red flag i think that i've seen
0: yes his son you know all three i believe he has three children i think all of them are still there in idaho yep. His son-in-law runs the college that he started. His daughter, Rebecca Merkel, is um, the one who hosted Even Exile, which Mm -hmm. is one of their newer films. And I was watching that and realizing how much she sounds like her father. Like a lot of the way, the snarkiness, the sarcasm, you know, there's an elitist aspect to it. Like we're a little bit better Christians Uh that her father has always been known for. And I could detect that in the way she was talking about other women and that was really troublesome that she's just continuing what mm-hmm. he's always preached.
1: Right, and we know there was a big feud between him and Rachel Held Evans a few years ago about that you were, you read that quote, we didn't really get into it the propriety of rape culture because that's mm-hmm. another thing that Wilson's been accused of in this patriarchal system. His his argument essentially as I understand it is and this is what she took him to task over, you're saying if a woman is quote unquote unprotected, then if she gets raped, it's on her. And that's kind of her fault. And he went on this long rant. I never said that because he does that. That's the thing about Wilson is he'll say these inflammatory things. Somebody will call him out on it and he'll attack and he'll obfuscate. And that that's kind of his MO, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And and the people who follow him as well, you might criticize something and they're very quick to jump on. You don't understand him. You know, you're mm-hmm. being overly critical. You're just looking for words out of context but he has a there's a lot of evidence to show that he's a problematic leader.
1: Yeah, um, on a lot of it, levels.
0: <laughs> yeah. You're not just we're not cherry picking quotes. No, no, it's one or it's two an things thing. Thing. There's,
1: there's loads of stuff. Yeah. And I'm I'm detailing a lot of that in this episode that I'm doing with Wilson going through the scandals and then looking at the people in his orbit, people like Vachum and Brian Salve and the Manosphere and all this stuff that's going on now. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable his influence now second and third generation, like I was saying. So what are you doing now, though? You mentioned before we hit record, you're actually working with sort of a a victim survivor aspect of ministry, or or I don't know what you call it. What are you doing nowadays?
0: I'm volunteering for tears of eden which is a non-profit and it's they, we don't have a religious aspect to it it's mm-hmm. based on it's for survivors of spiritual abuse so that's the religious aspect but we don't have an end point for survivors to reach whether they stay in their faith or leave the faith we want to be there to support them with resources and we have a support group and i am on the editorial board so i help survivors tell their stories and we publish them on our website so i really enjoy helping others who've been through similar things because when I got out I felt like I was the only one you know and I think more with the internet more and more people are speaking up about these kinds of stories so Mm -hmm. I'm really glad to be part of an organization that values that
1: yeah you're helping so many people do you find that you get a lot of ex-homeschoolers like yourself
0: Oh, yes. Yes. Many many of
1: us. (laughs) Similar stories. Yeah, I was going to say I'm reading the Homeschoolers Anonymous blog. Like I said, talking to Ryan, it's been really good to kind of get that other perspective of people who came through that system. There's a lot of religious trauma syndrome in there as well. Would you say you Mm -hmm. suffered from RTS as well?
0: I I would say so. I when I was looking for a therapist, I found someone who specializes in religious trauma, which I understand is pretty rare. Hopefully Hopefully getting more people are becoming more aware of it. But yeah, definitely had a lot of PTSD symptoms, especially surrounding church or just religion in general. So yeah, therapy has helped a lot with that, but just having a name for it's really helpful.
1: I was going to ask you, so what are some of the biggest aspects of your recovery? Because I've talked to loads of people with RTS, including myself, I would say therapy is one of the biggest ones. What about education? What's the role of education? As you say, being able to name the things that happened to you, how Mm -hmm. has that helped you to recover?
0: Just being able to describe what I was experiencing as something that's real. I think with Mm -hmm. spiritual abuse, it's invisible to a lot of people and they don't, you know, you don't have outward signs like you would with physical abuse necessarily, Um, So having the language to describe what happened to you, it helps people understand that this is a legitimate problem in a lot of churches. And I was able to go to college after leaving and just being able to see a wider world and that there's people who grew up differently and from all different backgrounds. It was just this amazing experience of, it's like going in from a closet, you know, and then opening the door and it's the entire world. That's what it felt like Mm -hmm. to me. So it was amazing for me to be able to do that and to feel like I can make choices on my own, which is also scary, but I'm learning to do, be better at that.
1: It's true. Those of us that grew up in those repressive religious environments, something that Robert J. Lipton said that really struck me in his book on thought reform, and the psychology of totalism. It's like getting out of a prison cell. You've been in prison for pretty much your whole life. The world, though, has moved on since you've been in this prison and you're like, oh, my gosh, I've got to completely reorient myself and educate myself and reinvent myself in a lot of ways. I mean, do you feel like this is something that I mean, as as a person who was raised in a religious environment, I didn't have a real identity. I only ever had the religious identity. So who is Kate? Who is the person that you're becoming? Is that the journey you're sort of on now?
0: Yeah, I would say so. It's like separating myself from the negative aspects of my past, but I can't completely, you know, I tried, I think at first I tried to just forget and move on and, and create this whole new person, but that didn't work. I went to college to study. I wanted to study fiction writing because I liked making up things. And then I just kept coming back to my story and writing nonfiction. So that's been a journey of just writing my own story and just being a storyteller and being able to share that with other people and help other people tell their stories is a big aspect of who I am today. And I can't take out the whole past, you know, that's brought me to where I am. I really love reading and books. And so in my, in the daytime, I work for a book publishing company. I love working with authors. So, you know, there's all these things, aspects of my life. It's, it feels more complex than just my goal is to become a wife and I'm going to be the best Mm -hmm. wife possible so I feel like there's lots more aspects to my life now and I can explore things I'm interested in and doesn't have to have some everlasting meaning for me to want to do it
1: right how's your latin is that something you still use
0: (laughs) I can I just do the amoa masamat one that's all I know I
1: I guess I I just I find that so strange that why would you need to learn latin I mean back in the medieval times that was the sort of the language of scholars I mean if you went to country after country, you could you could get by by speaking Latin to other scholars. It made sense, and the, and that's what all the academics and the theological books were written in. But now, why do you need to learn Latin?
0: I was told that it was to help me understand English better because some okay. of like the roots <clears throat> of English words are Latin. But that's true. Know, that's that's partly true, but there's like all sorts of other languages that impacted English. So yeah. I don't know why just Latin.
1: <laughs> why just Latin? It's it's a thing, isn't it? I mean I would say I when I studied Greek in Bible college and seminary, learning Greek helped me learn English better in a weird way, because then I had to parse, you know break down verbs and nouns and all the grammar i learned english grammar a lot better when i was translating greek you know so there is an mm-hmm. argument to be made i suppose for learning a dead language but you know that's that's like in the rarefied era of academics you know so yeah crazy especially
0: world. for a six-year-old i think maybe <laughs> yeah. <when you're> older <laughs>
1: Eh, maybe a little bit older when you're in, you know, you're a teens or adult. And even then it's, it's hard to make a case for it. Well, now how can people find you if they wanted to get, you said you, you have a blog. I think you said that how can people find you? Where's your sort of best place to find you on social media?
0: Right. So my website is Kate West.com. That's C-A-I-T-W-E-S-T.com. And then I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And my handle is at Kate West writes. So I try to post there pretty regularly, especially as I'm gearing up for my my memoir, um, trying to reach the people who want to read it. So find mm-hmm. me there.
1: And then how can people find so you mentioned that organization you volunteer for? How can people get a hold of that if they want to pursue more sort of resources down that line?
0: Yeah, if you want to send me a private message, um, if you'd like to share your story on Tears of Eden, send me a message on Instagram or Twitter. And I can send you the resource link to how to get started writing your story. You also can follow the Uncertain Podcast, which is where our founder, Catherine Spearing, hosts interviews about spiritual abuse. So that's a great, that's how I found them to begin with. So that's a great starting place is to listen to the podcast.
1: Right. Some really good resources. I mean, that's that's a key thing is, like we say, education is huge. Finding other people maybe Mm -hmm. building a whole new community. I mean, I've had to do it. You sound like you've had to do it. You know, we grew up in these repressive fundamentalist environments, you know, but now it's like, okay, who am I? Uh, Who's the person I'm becoming? We need to find a new tribe. I think that that's a lot of it, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I don't feel like I completely fit into the world outside of the religion, Mm -hmm. but I don't feel I don't fit in it anymore either. So it's like this middle ground, but I find that a lot of people are in that space. So that's very encouraging.
1: It is. It's very empowering, I think, when you find, as you said before, you're not alone. You're not crazy. There's thousands, hundreds, of, I don't know how many, you know, yeah. millions probably that have come out of similar backgrounds to you and I, and cults and all sorts of things. So having those resources is is critically important, I think.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I think it's. I'm so encouraged that so many people are are speaking up now. You know, as as much as I'm terrified by people like Doug Wilson who still have so much power. But I think with the internet, people are speaking up and especially women who've been abused in these scenarios. Um, So I'm really proud of them. And I'm really grateful that there's so many of us who are trying to make a difference.
1: Yeah, that's true. Well, you're definitely making a difference. Thank you so much, Kate, for taking the time to talk to me. I've really enjoyed meeting you and kind of comparing a little bit of stories. So thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.